This morning we come uh, in our study of the Minor Prophets to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest of the Minor Prophets. It is also the shortest book in the Old Testament, consisting of only 21 verses. And lest you think the sermon will be shorter for that reason, you're probably wrong. But anyway, we come to this wonderful little book. It is uh, a book uh, that is short, but it has a very powerful message. And I think it is relevant for our, our own day, as the Word of God always is, particularly as we think of things that are going on in our world and as we think of nations that are at war with one another and one nation seeking to overcome another nation. We have in the book of Obadiah conflict of nations here uh, that Obadiah is addressing. And we learn and we're reminded there's nothing new under the sun, is there? There is nothing new under the sun in this fallen world in which we live. And so Obadiah is going to speak in this a little book about a conflict between the nation of Judah and the nation of Edom. And it is a message that speaks about judgment, but also a message, as in most all the prophets, there is a message of hope. There's a message of good news. There's a message that God is going to fulfill and carry out his purpose. And it looks to a, a new day that will come. So we begin, first of all, with the prophet Obadiah and his calling. We see this in verse 1. It says, the vision of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. We saw last week as we spoke about Amos, Amos is um, the not-so-famous Amos. There's not, not much that we know about him. We are given a few details, but he's not well known as far as his life. As I've come to the book of Obadiah, I find that Obadiah is even less well-known than the uh, man Amos. We really don't know hardly anything about this man Amos or Obadiah. Obadiah, uh, I think there's about a dozen Obadiahs that we find in the Old Testament. Um, He doesn't seem to line up with any of the other Obadiahs that are mentioned in Scripture And really, all that we know about him uh, is that he was this prophet that was given this vision in in, in respect to the nation of Edom. We do do know something of his name. Uh, It means servant of Yahweh. Um, And so we we understand that he, he he is a follower of the Lord. He is one who is a servant of the Lord, and he has been called. But we really know nothing about him. We don't know his father, his occupation, his hometown. We don't know the date specifically of when he ministered. And even though the the messenger is obscure, his message is not. Uh, We learn much from this epistle, this book that is written by him. So this is the man Obadiah. And what was his calling? We see in verse 1, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. He is giving a message that is directed to the nation of Edom, and it's a hard message. Like many of the prophets, they come bearing a heavy message, a burden that is laid upon them to announce to whoever they are addressing. And this primarily is a message to the people of Edom, but it is also a message to Judah as well. Um, Probably Obadiah lived in Judah 
And so it's a message of hope for the people of God as they go through a difficult time. But it's a message concerning the Lord, uh, concerning Edom. And it's, again, it's not an easy message. Notice verse 1. We have heard a report from the Lord. This is a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. The Lord, we might say, is at war with Edom. This is an enemy of God, and he's calling other nations that are going to come and to oppose her, rise up against her. And so here is this vision, here is this message that is given. We might think of Belshazzar. You remember the handwriting on the wall where it said of Belshazzar, you've been weighed in the balance and you've what? You've been found wanting. And so it is with this nation, this little nation of Eden. They have been weighed in the balance, and they have been found wanting, and their cup of iniquity is now full, and God's judgment is to come upon this people. And so here is this report that is given against the people of Eden. So we might ask the question, well, who is Edom? Who is this nation of Edom? Well, it is a neighboring nation to the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, if you think about the land of Palestine, I should have put a map in your notes here, but if you think about the land of Israel, think of the Sea of Galilee. Then you have the River of Jordan that runs into, what, the Dead Sea. And just to the north of the Dead Sea and a little bit west is the city of Jerusalem, But then if you go to the bottom of the Dead Sea and just to the south, this would be the area that the city or the the nation of Edom was in. Uh, This was the location of it. So it is a neighbor to Judah in the south. But for us to understand and appreciate the book of Obadiah, we must see the pertinent history that is related and the background of it uh, to understand this book. And so if we can go back to the time of Abraham, these minor prophets are in the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. So if we can go back a little more than 1,000 years to the time of Abraham, we learn a little bit about the past history of this people who are the people of Edom, this nation. What we find is that unlike other nations that surrounded Israel and Judah, This nation, Edom, has a connection with them as far as their ancestry. These people have come from Abraham. So you remember that Abraham and his wife Sarah, they had a son who was the promised seed. You remember Sarah had been, uh, she had been barren and God enabled her to have a child And that child was Isaac. And Isaac marries, and he has a wife, Rebecca. And uh, they are barren. They are unable to have a child. And Isaac prays, and Rebecca, God answers the prayer, and Rebecca conceives, and she has a son. Uh, she's, She's pregnant, but she has in her womb two children. There are twins that are in her. And she knows something's going on in there because there's this wrestling around. And this is really a sign of things that are to come. 
she feels these children within her womb as they are, we might say, battling with one another there, wrestling in her womb. And Sarah kind of says, what gives? What, what's Not Sarah, but Rebecca says, what, what gives with this? And uh, the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb, and the two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So there's going to be a reversal of what is common procedure. The younger, the, the older is going to serve the younger. And uh, we know something about the struggles that went on between these two twins. Uh, there was indeed this sibling rivalry. And we know that uh, Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored um, uh, Jacob. It says that Jacob went, or Esau when he was born, it's kind of gross, it says he came out red and uh, he was hairy like a cloak. Um, that's stated about him when he's born. Um, and he was the hunter. He was the man out in the wild. And uh, then his brother um, Jacob was one who was the quiet one, who liked to dwell in the tent. And again, this is the one that his mother favored. And you know the story of Esau, that he was hungry, and Jacob had a pot of stew, and he came in after he had been hunting. He's hungry, and uh, he is willing to forego uh, the birthright in order to get this uh, pot of stew from his brother. So he has no real concern for the birthright, and he uh, wants to feed himself. He has contempt for it, we might say, and uh, he sells his birthright to his brother Jacob. And then we know Jacob deceives his father Isaac and gets him to pronounce a blessing upon him uh, when his brother Esau was out trying to bring home a deer for his father to feed him. And he deceives his father, and he gets the blessing before his brother Esau. And so what we see is this conflict between these two brothers. And this conflict continues on between these two families. They're like the Hatfields and the McCoys, we might say. And there's a struggle. And as we look at history, the family kind of replays throughout its history these difficult situation, uh, relationships. And so though the family bond was there, there was this tension for many, many centuries. And in fact, we see something of it when we read in Numbers chapter 20 about the children of Israel. God brings the sons of Jacob out of Egypt. They've been in bondage for 400 years. God brings them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness. And as they're going through the wilderness, they're going to come to this area where the sons of Esau live, where the people uh, of Edom live. And Moses sends a messenger to Edom and to their leaders, and they say, listen, we would like to pass through your land. We're your brothers. We would like to pass through your land. We will not eat your food. We'll not drink your water. If we do, we'll pay for it. We're, we're going to stay on the king's highway. We'll not get off. We'll not get into your fields. We're not going to mess with anything. Will you just let these refugees come through your land? And the response of the people of Edom is, no way, Jose. You're not coming through our land. And uh, Moses sent another messenger a second time, and they still said no. 
and uh, they actually um, um, came and uh, brought their armies and their swords, and they said, you're not coming here. And so they had to go a different way. But we see there this tension already, this enmity that is in the heart yet of the people of Edom toward uh, their relatives uh, in Israel. It's interesting when we read Deuteronomy 23.7, even after this, here's what God said to them, to, to, to the people of Israel, you shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. Isn't that interesting? They might have well had bitterness in their heart. But what we see in the word of God is that God is concerned about family relationships, isn't he? A man is to care for his family. If he doesn't, he's worse than an infidel. We have children in the fifth commandment. You are to honor and obey your mother and your father. You're to care for your family. You're to love your family. You're to have, you're not to, to, to be at enmity with them. And so God says to them, don't allow there to be enmity in your heart toward Edom because he's your brother. And we're reminded, as Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another because we belong in a family, don't we? We are in the family of God. And so this this uh, applies to us as well as we think of the family of God. So that's their past history, a little more recent history, as we would fast forward 1,000, 1,200, 1,300 years, whenever Obadiah is writing. We find that not much has changed in the day in which Obadiah is writing. We read in verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob writing to Edom, speaking to Edom, because of the violence that you've done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. So we find that even now, in the time in which this prophet is writing and speaking to Edom, that there is this strife and there's this enmity that Edom has toward the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. Now, we're not sure exactly when this was, but as we read from 11, verses 11 to 14, there is a difficult time in the, in the city of Jerusalem. It's a time that they're being oppressed. There's a nation that has come in, and they have oppressed them, and Edom has joined in this. Rather than helping their brother, they have opposed uh, them. Now, we're not sure when this is. In the, in the time of the prophets, there are, are several occasions when this could have happened. Obadiah doesn't give us any clear indication. There was a time when King Jehoram was the king in Judah, and the Philistines and the Arabians attacked Jerusalem. They carried away many of the possessions that were there in Jerusalem. It could have been then. Some see it maybe as a a series of invasions that happened when a wicked king, King Ahaz, ruled in Judah in about 731, he was a wicked king. He had made images of Baal and had the people to worship this, and he even burned his own sons in the fire, offered them up as offerings to the pagan gods. And for that reason, for the great wickedness of this, uh, this king, God, it says that God gave them over to the Syrians, 
and they took captive a great number of people. And God also gave them over to the king of the north of the time. He was King Pekah. And he came and killed 120,000 of these Judeans in one day. And he took 200,000 captives and much spoil. Uh, you can read about that in Second Chronicles 28. But in Second Chronicles 28, we read these words as well. While all this is going on, we read that the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. So some think that it may have been at this time that uh, Obadiah was writing and, and ministering. Then the other view is that it was during the fall of the city of Jerusalem. When the Babylonians came in between the years of like 605 down to 586, when they brought great destruction and took the people into captivity, killed many people, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, and, and plundered it. Probably most commentators kind of lean in this direction, that it was during this time, the ultimate fall of the southern kingdom in 586, and we read this interesting statement in Psalm 137. This is when the children of Israel are in exile. The people of Judah have been taken into exile in Babylon. And by the waters of Babylon, it says, We sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Thinking there's a lot of people from the Ukraine that are now no longer in their homeland. And as they think of their homeland, they are weeping as they think of the things that have happened to them in such a short time. Well, here are these that are in exile in Babylon, and they're weeping as they remember Zion. And it says, they've hung up their harps on the willows. They've hung up their hearts. We, we can't sing. And yet the Babylonians are saying to them, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they're having a hard time. We can't sing. But in the context of that, it says this, O oh Lord, remember the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, and how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So they were aware during this time of exile that their brothers, their cousins, are against them. And so this may have been the time in which uh, these events uh, had taken place. We're not... Sure, but it, it really doesn't matter as we think of this. It's not that important. What, what is important is the message. And we see the compact but powerful message of Obadiah. It's a short book, but it is a powerful message that is given by God through this prophet. And he is kind of like the prosecutor. He is bringing charges against the people of Edom. And the first is a charge, uh, the opposition that God has to Edom. We see this in verses 1 through 14. The first charge that is brought against them is because of their pride. The pride of the Edomites. This is one thing that stands out in this book. Notice in verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations and you shall be utterly despised. This is the word of God to Edom. Notice verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. 
Pride deceives us, doesn't it? Pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So we hear the arrogance of this people and of its leaders. If you're familiar with Edom, uh, the area in which it is located, uh, one of the cities, which was probably the capital at this time, was the city of Petra. And Petra is located in a mountainous area. It's a, there's a valley and then these huge walls that go up, up to 2,000 feet. And they have carved into those walls, into the sandstone, they've carved dwelling places where, where they live. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you've seen some of that in that movie, uh, which was filmed there. So they were up in these, in these dwelling places, up in the mountains, and they thought themselves to be in, invincible. This was well able to be disguised or, or to be uh, protected. It was easily protected because there was a narrow entrance to get into this area, and it could easily be protected. So they, they thought that they were they were high and lifted up, and and no one could bring them down. And that's what they claim. Who will bring me down to the ground? As I I was studying this week, I couldn't help but think of Hitler's eagle's nest. Remember that high resort area that he had up in the mountains where no doubt he felt safe and protected? Well, so they felt. And like Hitler, they were full of pride and arrogance And so their dwellings that were high and lifted up also represented their hearts. Their hearts were exalted. They were arrogant. They were self-confident and self-assured. Who will bring us down? As we think about pride, we need to understand that pride is no minor sin. This is a serious sin. James and Peter and others say that God is opposed to the proud. Think about that. God is opposed to the proud heart. If you are a proud and arrogant person, God is opposed to you. He is against you. God is opposed to the proud and arrogant heart. Proverbs 6. There are six things, even seven that the God that God hates that are an abomination to him. What is number one on the list? It is the haughty eyes. It is the proud look. God is opposed to the proud. In Isaiah 2 and verse 12, we read this. For the day of the Lord of hosts, the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. God in judgment throughout history brings down the proud, and there will be a final day, the day of the Lord, in which he will bring all that are proud and arrogant. They will be brought low in the day of the Lord. And that day has come for the Edomites. This day of the Lord has come for them. And, and there's no escape. They think they are safe. They think they're invincible. But 
But God says, no, you're coming down. And we see this here in verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You you think you're exalted uh, even into the heavens, but I will bring you down. Verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, he's envisioning what what they have done to others, that that this is going to happen to them. They're going to come and plunder you. But when a thief comes, he really just takes the things that are of value to him. He's, He's usually not stealing your refrigerator or your washer or your dryer. He takes the more more valuable things. But when these thieves come, when these plunders come, they're, they're taking the washer and the dryer and everything else, the kitchen sink. This is going to be full uh, destruction of the people of Edom. And even those that you have made allies with, that you think are your neighbors and your friends, verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you, and those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. I will, will I, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. You know, when God wants to judge a nation, he can remove wisdom, wise leaders, give them over to fools. You ever hear in our day, there just doesn't seem to be any common sense anymore? (laughs) Maybe that's a day we're living in. This could be a judgment that comes from God when we're given over to foolishness. And so it was for the people there of Edom. God's judgment is coming upon them. And uh, we see that uh, he will remove um, their allies from them and their wives. There's a warning here again to us to to see and be reminded of the exceeding wickedness of pride. The exceeding wickedness of pride. It's really at the root of our fallen world, isn't it? You think of Lucifer when he fell from heaven. What, What was at the heart of that but pride? He wanted to be like the Most High. What was it with our first parents when they were being tempted by Lucifer? Wasn't it not saying, listen, God's withholding something from you. You can decide what is good and evil. You can decide how to run your life. You don't need to submit to what God has said. You can be your own God. And it was pride in which they fell. And we find that same pride in ourselves, don't we? We, their children of Adam and Eve, we too know what pride is in our own hearts. But God is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to the proud. And uh, so there is a reminder to us here of the, the great wickedness of pride. It calls forth the judgment of God. And so there's a warning that is sounded here to the proud heart to flee to Christ. There is only one deliverer, one savior who can save us from our proud and arrogant hearts to want to be like sheep to go our own way. 
You know, when we think of the, the picture of a sheep that's straying, we often think about that kind of in, oh, that cute little sheep, he's just wandering away from the shepherd, going his own way. No, that's a re- the picture is of rebellion. There's, prou- there's a proud heart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go my own way. I'm not going to submit to, the, to, to God. I'm going to go my own way. And there is only one Savior for such sinners, and it is Jesus Christ. And the call of the gospel is to flee to him. Well, the second sin that we find here, and the prosecutor Obadiah presents, is not only because of their great pride, but also because of her opposition to God's people. We see this in verses 10 to 14. Verse 10, it it says there, uh, because of this violence that you've done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you you shall be cut off forever. And then it lists for us a number of things. During the time that Judah has come under attack by whatever nation in this hard time when they're plundering the city of Jerusalem and taking captives, we find that uh, verse 11, on that day you stood aloof. You stood and you observed these things as these strangers carried away uh, and plundered them. Um, You stood aloof from them as they were being plundered and attacked. And in verse 12, you you even gloated. You even gloated over this day uh, that they came under this misfortune. And, And you rejoiced over this. And then verse 13 They even entered into plundering. They weren't just observing, but they became participants in this. And they themselves plundered their own family and took things in the day of calamity. They looted and took wealth. And then verse 14, it even says they stood at the crossroads. This is what they had done uh, at, at the crossroads to cut off its fugitives and to hand over the survivors in the day of his distress. These are things that they had done that they should not have done. And so here is God through the prophets speaking about how they had mistreated those who were their brothers. But what makes this the more egregious is that it wasn't just any neighbor that they did this to, but it was to their family members. It was to their brother, their cousins. But there's something that is even worse than that. This was the promised seed of Abraham. This is the descendants through whom the Messiah is going to come. And they have nothing but contempt for the house of Abraham and for the seed of Jacob. They have contempt for any of the things associated with him. Just like Esau, who had contempt for his birthright, they have contempt for this, the promised seed of Abraham, through whom the Messiah would come. God's plan to bring blessing and salvation, there is contempt for the seed of Jacob. And we might hear them saying, we'll not have this man to rule over us. We'll not have this younger brother, this Jacob, to rule over us. And there is contempt in their heart for their 
uh, brother. And in fact, they persecute and they oppose. It's like Jesus, isn't it? The Pharisees, the religious, many of the people of the day of Jesus will not have this man to rule over us. We'll have nothing to do with this promised seed of Abraham. Remember when Paul was converted, when Jesus appeared to him and he said to Saul, 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 why persecutest thou me? What you are doing as you, as you are tormenting the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, you are persecuting me. And so it is with these people of Edom. All of their atrocities are, are against their brother, but the brother in whom the promises of God are to come. And what we find is this cup of iniquity is now full. And God is saying that judgment is going to fall upon this people. We see then, secondly, we see God's promise of things to come. We see his judgment that is going to come upon the people of Eden. But as we close out this book, like we do with many of the epistles, there is a ray of hope. There is promise that is given to us. And we see the promise of things that are to come. Verse 15, first of all, there's going to be judgment that is going to come to Edom. It's going to come to pass. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountains, so all the nation shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. God's judgment is going to fall upon Edom. Judgment will come upon them, what they have done to others will be done unto them. And uh, we find this is exactly what happened to Edom. Uh, Robert Lee, uh, not Robert E. Lee, but Robert Lee, a commentator, said this, that after Israel's restoration, Cyrus, king of Persia, overcame Edom, slaughtering thousands of them. They suffered another crushing defeat by the Jews under the Maccabees and slowly disappeared as a nation until their very name perished. So the nation of Edom came to an end. However, we note something here in verse 15. It says the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, upon all the nations. And it seems that what Obadiah is saying, what the Lord is saying, that what we find in Edom is, a, is kind of a foreshadowing that is going to come upon all the enemies of God, upon the nations that have opposed him. The Geneva Bible has a footnote that says, Here Obadiah sets the destruction of Edom against the larger backdrop of God's moral reckoning with all nations. This episode with Edom is only a small preview of God's judgment, he will not stop until he has cleansed his world of all of his enemies. The connection between Edom and the rest of the nations is their shared rebellion against God. It's not just Edom that is going to undercome the wrath of God. Throughout history, nation after nation has 
come under the wrath of God, but ultimately, in the last and final day, all nations, all enemies of God, will come under his wrath and his judgment. And so, just as this prideful nation, all nations that are opposed to God will come under his judgment. And so we read in Isaiah 51, Thus says the Lord your God, who defends his people, See, I have removed from your hand the cup of staggering. They had known the judgment of God against their own sins, but I've removed that cup from you, And from the goblet, the cup of my fury, you will never drink again. I will place it in the hands of your tormentors. And so it is here with the case of Eden that they are coming under the judgment and the wrath of God. But in the midst of this, we have this word of hope in verse 17. God is going to judge the nations. He's going to judge those who are his enemies and the enemies of his people. But in Mount Zion, There shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. All nations will come under the judgment of God, but there will be a remnant. There will be a remnant that comes to the people of God in Mount Zion. He's going to bring them back to the land. He's going to restore them. And it goes on in verses 19 to speak about restoring them back into their land. And he will bless them and they will receive again. Their, their, they will rebuild the temple. There will be holiness in the land, the worship of Jehovah again in the land. But many believe that this is even looking beyond that. Matthew Henry says, much of this prophecy was fulfilled when the Jews returned to their own land. But the salvation and holiness of the gospel, its spread, and the conversion of the Gentiles seem also to be intended. There will be this remnant. There's always been a remnant in the Old Testament of God's people, true believers. And there will be this remnant that will come back and will be restored But there is going to be this great blessing that is going to go out to the nations as the gospel goes forth. As King Jesus comes into the world, the Messiah comes, and now the gospel is taken into all the world. Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his disciples, go in from here, uh, Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And there will be this ingathering of the people of God even in the day of Christ. And this book ends in verse 21 to speak about the kingdom of the Lord. Mount Esau is going to perish, and Zion will rule, and it concludes with this wonderful statement, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Again, the Geneva Bible says, he will judge his enemies and deliver his people with finality, And God will be all in all, and his glorious, triumphant people will reign forever with him. In this promise, Judah found hope for a future without Edomite persecution. Here to the church, here too, the church finds hope for the future. When the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Be a good place to sing the Hallelujah chorus, wouldn't it?
there's a lot of ways in which we differ on how this is all going to be fulfilled maybe, but we know this, that there will be given to this promised seed of David a kingdom that will last forever. There will be no end and there will be no rivals. All his enemies will be put under his foot and come under the judgment of God. Now just quickly in conclusion, as we think of this little book of Obadiah, we see there is hope for us as we live in this fallen, broken world. We see warring nations. We see conflict. We see division. We see all kinds of atrocities. But believers, we have a wonderful hope. I'm going to talk about that tonight at our joint service. I hope you'll come meet some of our other brothers and sisters from our city here and uh, fellowship together. But we're going to talk about the living hope that Christ has won for us that is to hold us up as we live in this fallen world, that we are people who have a hope granted to us because of the gospel. There is also, as we think of Obadiah, there's a warning to the proud, to the unrepentant sinner. God is opposed to you. Flee to Christ. There is only one Savior to save you from your proud and arrogant, rebellious ways against God as a sheep going your own way. And it is only in Jesus Christ. Run to him. Flee to him. Repent of your sin and turn to Christ. Thirdly, for the church, we can be thankful today that that cup of iniquity that was full for the Edomites and our own cup as believers, our cup, the two left to ourselves would be filled up with our own sin, our own pride, our own iniquity. Jesus Christ himself has taken that cup to himself and he has emptied that cup in our place so that we could be forgiven. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And thanks be to God that it is so. And there is a call to us as the people of God that we would be characterized not by pride, self-assertion, self-promotion, that we would be characterized by humility like our Savior who humbled himself and served us. Let this mind be in you that was also in Jesus Christ who stepped across the stars of heaven and took upon himself our likeness to die in our place. And so Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves with humility. Let that be your dress. Let that be what characterizes your life, that you would be marked by humility. And to do that, we have to fight against pride that wells up yet within our hearts. May God make us to be such a people.